Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. If you or someone you know has been affected by childhood sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis 24-Hour Helpline is 1-800-777-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Kavanagh Sisters, and we'd like to welcome you to our series of podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Joanne Nielsen. She is a consultant paediatrician in the University Hospital Galway, a medical forensic examiner in child sexual assault cases, and a clinical director of the Child and Adolescent Sexual Assault Treatment Service in Galway. Originally from Belfast, Joanne moved to Galway in 2008, where she discovered that there was no local child sexual assault units. She found the services were either not there or not accessible, and this meant that children had no voice. She wanted to change that, so in 2011, she became instrumental in setting up a city-based child and adolescent sexual assault treatment unit, offering a 24-hour service to children in the West and Midwest. In 2018, Joanne was one of the specialists involved in the development of the National Guidelines on Referral and Forensic Clinical Examinations following rape and a sexual assault in Ireland. Joanne's most recent research publication into child abuse and neglect is The Variabilities in Child Protection Medical Evaluations of Suspected Physical Abuse in Four European Countries, a vignette study, which outlines a number of key messages for practitioners to improve child services. Joanne, can I just start by asking you to tell us what is a medical forensic examiner? I know most of us would have only ever heard of the word forensic in programs like CSI. And then what is it that drew you to that field in the first place? You've certainly done your homework anyway. You've given a presse of, uh, of my life without me having to run through my CV. I might start with what drew me to it first. I think it helps to go back, give you a little bit of an appreciation of why I moved into this field and then I can explain what forensic medical evaluation is and how we feel it might be helpful for children and adolescents. So this area of work is certainly not something I would have thought I'd be drawn to when I was a medical student or in training. I started work as a consultant paediatrician in Belfast. I did a half community, half hospital host. And as part of that, I was landed with the title of a lead paediatrician for child protection in the trust. As a result of the title, I had to upskill and develop my continuing medical education in that area. In doing so, and in sort of sitting around the table with many other people much more expert than I, I realized that in Belfast at that time, forensic medical evaluation for child sexual assault was done by really essentially adult examiners. And the service they were giving wasn't gold standard. And so with... A close colleague, we started to go on extra training courses. We had to travel over to England for those and learn what a gold standard evaluation really was. And with my colleague and then with the support of the forensic examiners in Belfast, we started to develop a model that we felt was working towards children's best interests. And then as luck has it, or life throws bombshells at you, I suppose, we ended up moving as a family down to Galway in 2008. And having got forensic skills, which is a sort of an unusual arm or an unusual specialty, having got those forensic skills in child abuse, and that includes physical abuse as 
well as sexual abuse. I wanted to maintain those skills and slot into the rota that I anticipated was already in place down in the west of Ireland. And so I made contact with the social workers at that time and we had a meeting and at that point, and this was 2008, I realised that there was no service in terms of forensic medical evaluation for child sexual assault. And I was tasked with developing a business case to see about setting one up. So I had a fantastic colleague who was working really in isolation, trying to provide forensic medical evaluations for children on his own in one of the private hospitals that was in the Bon Secours Hospital in Galway. And with him, we developed a business case. It took until 2011 for that to be formally endorsed by the HSC, and it's been funded to some extent from that time. That shows how I got into this area. It certainly wasn't something I would have thought I would have been doing over time. And so I have learned a lot, and I hope that the children that we have been working with have benefited from service. I might tell you a little bit about what a forensic medical examination is because I think at the time that you were children and the time that awful things were happening to you, there wasn't anything in Ireland that would equate to what we have tried to bring forward. A forensic medical examination involves a top-to-toe examination of a child. And when I say child, that means anybody under the age of 18. In Ireland, services are split in that children from 14 years upward attend sexual assault treatment units. And there's six of those in Ireland. And if a child of 14 and above has been assaulted, they can attend any one of those units, depending on where they live, and have forensic samples taken and a complete examination. But for children under the age of 14, there has been no such formalised service until recent times. Although we concentrate on very young children, we also work very closely with our adult counterpart to make sure that all ages have access to service with equity. And that has been a challenge. So a forensic medical examination is a top-to-toe examination of a child. So we start with a clinical history from the non-offending caregiver. We talk about what's happened with the caregiver, not always with the child, because it depends on the age of a child. A very young child, three, four, five, to be very conscious not to talk and talk and re-traumatise them, asking them to tell their, their history or tell their story. And it's also very important not to contaminate what guardie might do with their specialist guardie interviews. So I'll talk with young children, mainly to the caregiver, in terms of the abuse and not relive it for the child, unless they want to tell me, in which case they're very welcome and we will provide an open and listening environment. So we take a clinical history, we talk about uh, the details of the abuse with the caregiver and with the adolescent if they feel strong enough. And then we examine from top to toe. So that's looking at your ears, looking at your hair, making sure the little ones don't have head lice, looking to see have they any dental caries, will they need dental treatment, listening to the heart, listening to the lungs, seeing do they need treatment if they have asthma, and looking at their tummy, looking at their development, and doing an intimate examination. For older children and adolescents, they can tell their own history if they want to. And that's really to guide my examination. So I'm looking specifically to know you know, were you hurt maybe on your arm? Did you have burn that I need to look at in greater detail or when it comes to sexual abuse? 
what happened? How did it happen? Was there blood? Was there pain? Will that fit with any physical finding that I might determine? So the intimate examination is only one part of what we do. And if you look at the research behind this, when we do an examination for, for children in terms of a child protection assessment, between 30 to 70% of them will have other health needs that we can help with. The intimate examination is part of the process and an intimate examination sounds horrible and there's a lay perception that it's horrible for the child. We don't find that generally. We find that certainly if you're a three-year-old or a four-year-old, examining your bottom is no different from examining any part of you and they're right. very relaxed and their caregiver is in with them and they can sit on the knee or they can hold the hand or they can, we have two stethoscopes and I listen to the heart and the child generally listens to the heart, uh, their own heart or listens to the caregiver's heart and we let them bring toys in with them and they can look at little cartoons on a mobile phone if they want and we try and make it as child friendly as is possible. So the intimate examination obviously is a look at the genital area and the back passage and in young children that's a look outside not inside. So the other myth that goes um, with this sort of a process is that a child might have to go undergo an internal examination. Well Prepubertal children, that's not the case. We don't put anything inside. It's not like an adult woman having a speculum examination. This is a look at the outside tissues of the genital area and this magic sheet of tissue called the hymen that everybody gets very excited about. That is very important. It's also very, very tender if it's touched. So we don't touch it in, in little children. And as you get older and go through puberty and uh, become an adolescent, it becomes less tender and much easier to do more invasive examinations, which again are done according to whether or not the child or adolescent feels comfortable with that. It was just something that you mentioned there about young children and you were saying that the intimate examination, far from what people would expect, we don't find that children find it too difficult at all. No. And I'm I can only speak personally, but I know from the moment I was abused, I became very self-conscious about my body. And although a child without being abused shouldn't have an issue about somebody having a look, if you're handling it right and talking them through it and all that, and they have their main carer with them and everything, and you've made it as comfortable as possible. But I know personally that no matter how young I was, that would have been traumatic for me because, I mean, even now, if I'm getting a smear test all these years later, I find it traumatic. But I remember just from the moment I was abused, my body and my view of it changed. Did you ever have an examination, any of you? I, yeah. I did when I was about eight or nine and I got a prolapse wound from being raped. And oh. I got an exam then, but the doctor absolutely didn't nothing my father standing outside the curtain and he came out to him and my father told him i had been playing with a stick i was at yeah. that age and he just accepted that and that was the end of it yeah you see i would like to think that now uh, and this is another part of what we try and do uh, in the forensic medical field i would like to think that the doctors i'm working with now would see that as a red flag and right. i wouldn't accept that a child easily falls on a stick because they yeah. don't. I mean, I they, they, they can do. Yeah. But I, I think in honesty, maybe that doctor did see something and thought it was wrong. But at the same time, they wouldn't have the resources. Like, where would you turn with something like that? I don't think he was 
an idiot. I think he was aware that my father was lying, that something seriously had happened to Paula, but he probably wouldn't have known what to do with that information. No. No, no I, I'd like to think that things have changed. So I do a lot of teaching and training and with the medical students coming through and with the forensic nurses, because now uh, nurses are training to do the pediatric examinations with us in our centre right. in Galway and also in Crumlin. What we'd like to, to do is promote education in this area so the children, um, so the questions are asked so children don't have to suffer in silence. We, we tend to see that reticence in the slightly older children. So the very young, we have so, so many toys and so many distractions and a PlayStation and they're delighted. The older ones, of course, are much more cautious and it's age appropriate to be private. We try and give the patients the control themselves. So That's very uh, good. with the adolescents, we'll say, right, okay, this is what we can do. Now, what are you going to be comfortable with? And they might be comfortable in letting you look at their arm, but they don't want to take their brow off. And so that's fine. They don't have to take their brow off. Or I usually say, look, let's see, let's start the process and see how, how we, we get on. And if at any stage you're uncomfortable or want me to stop, I will stop. The adolescents will often test you <laughs> and they'll let you do something and then they say stop and you stop. Lots of adolescents go away and then come back in a week or so and decide that they want to do the full examination. They've tested you, you have respected their boundaries and you've listened to them and given them back the control because in all of this the kids lose the control. Absolutely. And um, That's a very, very important point, point that you've picked up on is the control. Yeah. But you also said that with the young children, you don't ask them anything, but if they volunteer, absolutely you listen to them. For if you have a child before you who does actually volunteer the information, do you document that or report it anywhere? Oh, yes. I mean, it depends how the child has come to us. So the way that you can access our service is the children come through the Gardaí or they come through Tusla or their G they have gone to their GP with complaint and it may be a medical complaint that raises the suspicion of sexual abuse, perhaps unexplained bleeding or a chronic discharge. And so they come in referred by a professional. Often they will already have had some degree of questioning as to whether or not they may have been abused. So I'm not going to ask them again. Often I will have sufficient information. So Tusla or the Gardaí will tell me what they already know. So I don't have to ask the child again. But if a child wants to disclose, I will say, oh yes, okay, tell me a little bit about that. And they will tell me and I will write it down verbatim. The examination is very comprehensive, very holistic. We do sexually transmitted infection screening. That's as a reassurance because it's wonderful at the end of the process to be able to turn to the child or the parent or both and say, look, whatever has happened, you're physically well, you're free from infection, your body is exactly the way it's designed to be. Anything that has happened is in the past in terms of your physical health and you can now go forward and be reassured at that time. I think it would have made a difference to us growing up if we knew that. Yeah. If we knew that, you know, we were fine. I think what we're doing is predominantly addressing the psychological welfare of the patients as much as it is looking for forensics and looking for healed physical signs or acute physical signs.
most of the examinations I do will be normal and therefore won't help one way or, or the other to determine whether a child's been sexually abused. And why are they normal? They're normal because children don't disclose about sexual abuse at the time that it happens. It might slip out weeks or months or years down the line when the child or then adult feels safe. And therefore, when I examine, I'm looking for healed findings. And the body is wonderful. It heals very quickly. But that means there are no residual physical signs in most of the cases I see because they're either they weren't injured in a way that leaves you to have scarring or the injuries have healed perfectly. I will always have somebody with me as a chaperone and I will ask them also to just write it down so that we have a clear recollection of exactly what the child said. Because at the end of the day, what the child says is the most important bit. And right. when it comes to a court process. Joanne, if you don't do an internal on a, a child, regardless of their age, can you tell if they've been sexually penetrated? What age do you not do an internal? Up to what age? Up until really puberty is well established in the hymen is not sore and the adolescent has to be comfortable with an internal and that's usually in uh, adolescents who are using tampons who may be sexually active for uh, co consensually with their with their own partners but so what about young children who are being sexually penetrated how do you determine that well it's sore so we we don't do it you don't often have scars within the vagina so you're actually in little girls focusing very much on the area outside the vagina, which is the genital skin and the hymen. So the hymen is really a, a, most often a circular sheet of tissue that can be torn with penetration. And if it's torn, can heal either by leaving a tear, a healed tear, or a deep notch so the hymen is notched. Joanne, ultimately a torn hymen wouldn't really strengthen anybody's case, would it? That's a very important finding in young children, prepubertal children, that's consistent with vaginal penetration. Okay, but you right. see, you can penetrate without tearing the hymen. Right. So you're asking me, can I do an examination and know whether a child has been penetrated or not? No, is mostly the answer. Just we are all very aware that we would have been penetrated when we were three, four, five. So I'm just wondering with kids who somebody discloses early and they're that young, mm. how can you strengthen their case medically? They may have physical findings. So they right. may have something that supports penetration. But the figures are 96% of kids who have been penetrated will not have any signs. So the examination is going to be normal. It's quite amazing when you think of the body's healing powers, unless the hymen has been torn in such a way that it's left a complete tear. And that's often with quite a degree of, of trauma. And if you think, as you well know, that most children are groomed and that abuse creeps up and it's not done with force to cause bleeding, then it's unlikely that there's going to be residual physical signs. That's interesting. Are the results of your examinations and tests what brings a case? Does that determine, does a case go forward and investigate it or is it only part of it? 
that's only one small piece of the jigsaw of assessment and in actual fact a normal examination doesn't help one way or the other in terms of a criminal prosecution so often I have to go to court and explain to judge and jury why it's possible to penetrate without having any residual physical signs. If there is a physical sign it's helpful in a criminal prosecution but those cases are very few and far between. Yeah. And if there is no signs and yet the child may have confided in you what their daddy did, would That's you? That's the most important thing. Yeah, so you'd get the opportunity to present that in a court, would you? I would, but the most important thing in the criminal trials that I have been part of is the child's videotaped Gardee specialist interview, right. where they've had the opportunity over half an hour, 40 minutes, maybe two or three times to tell their own history in their own words in a non-threatening environment. And the voice of the child in those interviews is so powerful and so distressing, I must say. That's what carries the case through. Yeah. And that's great if the child's old enough to verbally give their history. The difficulty right. arises when a child is pre-verbal. You know, when can you start to get a child to give a specialist interview? I interviewed a victim who had been digitally penetrated at a year and a half. And it's yeah. on record as saying that at the time she was examined, they advised that the father's fingers were very big. So he wasn't... Yeah, I heard that. I listened to I mean, that. Bea Murphy, yeah, yeah. Very, very powerful. But you, you see, so in court, having the voice of the child is very powerful. So how old do you have to be before you can give a history that adults will understand? Yeah. And I suppose precious guardies, interviewers would be best placed to give you that information. But I think they start to consider those interviews from the age of around four. It depends on the speech and language skills of a child. A six-year-old would be much better placed to, to give it. Right. The voice of the child is actually really important, but then you're a bit stuck when it comes to a two or three year old or, or even younger than that, because physical examination might be normal. The child can't speak and it's all circumstantial. You recently did the research on child abuse and neglect. What were the findings? You did it in four different countries, didn't you? That was looking at the way doctors deal with imagined scenarios of child abuse. And we were asking doctors in different countries how they would approach that and how they would investigate. What we were hoping to develop is some sort of standardised approach throughout Europe where doctors would have the same approach to child abuse. They do the same investigations. They would identify the, the same risk factors and red flags, and they would ultimately work to protect the, the children. In Europe, there's huge variability in how these cases are handled. In Ireland, there's huge variability in how these cases are handled. So we're trying to work from student level up to improve detection and response to all aspects of child abuse. That's physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect and, and child sexual abuse. So have the guidelines been set or developed yet or that's still work in progress? With respect to child sexual abuse, we have published in the National SARC guidelines, the Sexual Assault Treatment Guidelines in 2018, we have a child and adolescent paediatric chapter saying what the gold standard is for child sexual abuse evaluation. Well, so yes, they have been set for Ireland. Do you know if they're being implemented? Pretty much. <laughs> the difficulty, as always, is in funding. And 
in attracting enough people with the right expertise into the area. So are they being implemented mostly, but there is a bit of an air code lottery that specifically applies to accessing child sexual abuse forensic examination out of ours. The Galway covers West and Midwest Ireland, and we're the only unit that has 24-hour availability. So even as it stands today, if a child is raped in Dublin on a Friday night, there's nobody on call in Dublin for child sexual abuse to do a forensic medical examination. Joanne, do you have any numbers on the amount of children that go through that are being presented to you? Yeah. Well, I suppose I can only say for our service, so last year, there were 115 children we examined through child and adolescent services, and then there would be another 20 who presented through the adult services aged between 14 to 18. And we work closely with our, our adult colleagues. And this year, we have seen at least 45 children so far, and in fact, We've had a backlog because of COVID, so we've had to say we can't see um, who are alleging sexual assault more than a month ago because of the COVID thing. We're trying to keep face-to-face contact limited so that we're now starting to work our way through. And I'm certainly passionate if a child discloses that they have been sexually assaulted, however long ago that it happened. What they and their carers are looking for is an urgent response to that, as in, I hear you, this is what's going to happen. Let's give you the opportunity to have a top-to-toe health check. Let's link you to therapeutic services and let's move forward on something that you've just disclosed, no matter how long ago it happened. Because I don't think it's fair to put you on a waiting list and deal with it in a few weeks or, or months. Did you ever do a family like ours that the entire yeah. female were abused? Yes, sadly, yes. Yeah. And you see that and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I'm so sorry for your experiences. I, I would like to think that it wouldn't be happening in this time here and now, but it is. It, I think that's part of the problem in the fact that people think it isn't happening today. That's going to impact on funding and that's going to impact on service availability. Joanne, if I suspected a child was being abused right now, what are the steps that I take? It depends whether you think the child is in immediate danger. So if the child's in immediate danger, you phone the guards and you ask the guards to intervene. The other thing to do is to report to Tusla. You can pick up the phone and report to the duty social worker and they will take action. What type of action? Social worker will make an assessment, so they'll call out to the family and they'll explore the concerns that you have expressed and they'll make sure that the child is safe. How would they explore that? Years ago, I knew of a man who was abusing at least two of his daughters at the time and Mm. I reported it to the HSE at the time and the guards and the Mm. HSE sent a social worker and it wasn't immediate either. It was a good six weeks later and interviewed the child in front of the abusing parent. And naturally mm-hmm. enough, the child said no, that nothing like that was happening. And that was the end. We're, we're after been hearing some pretty hairy stories about Tussle. Uh, you know, there'd be a lot of people afraid to actually connect with them now. 
We work very closely with Isla and hate to hear you saying that sort of thing because normally the social workers that we're working with are very skilled, make sure that the child is safe and if they wouldn't interview in front of the father, they would link in and do an assessment with the non-offending parent and speak to the child and possibly the child would be linked in with the guardian and the, fa and the father if he was su suspected of abusing the children would be asked to leave the house or a safety plan would be put in place. Uh, every case is individual. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, as I said, the case I'm speaking about happened many years ago and hopefully it has changed. I would wonder what's the process if I suspected somebody now and how quick would they act? Can you make an allegation on vision? Would I actually prove your suspicion that a child is being harmed is enough. Yeah. Absolutely. And equally, when it comes to professionals, so many professionals are mandated to make a report if they believe a child is at risk, if they have reasonable grounds to believe a child is being harmed. Do they go in and remove the child or do they go in and remove the accused? They don't remove the child from the family. It's the offender either who leaves or a safety plan so that it has to be supervised. Those days are long gone where the child is taken out as if they're the one that's done something wrong. That's terrible. That's not done. If our father was taken away when we were kids, we would have taken the blame for that. We would have felt responsible. No matter what, whether it's us going or him, I'd prefer he go, but if it was him, I think I'd still feel responsible for breaking the family. Yeah, the whole situation is horrible. And what you are relying on is that the non-offending parent is supporting and believing the, the children. And I don't know if you had that. We probably would have had, but we didn't. Yeah. When it came yeah. out, but, I mean, it didn't come out until we were adults. The forensic examinations that you do, are they available across the country or only in Galway? They're available in working hours in other areas. So Dublin right. have a great daytime working hours service, and that's in the Laurels Clinic in Crumlin. And then Cork have a more limited service. But as it stands, it's insufficient. So what I'd like to see is there is a vision is that the same service we have 24 hours for Western Midwest Ireland would then be rolled out in Dublin and in Cork so that children throughout the country have the same access to the same services whenever it's needed. Now that's going to take funding and that's going to take coordinated national approach and, and as yet there isn't a coordinated national lead and there isn't the money for that and they're not, uh, we're, we're not funded to have a full-time clinical presence in those areas and that's what I'm looking for. So um, where's your funding come from? I'm funded by the HSE and then the Gardaí input for the forensic medical legal report. Most of what we do is health-related anyway, and so that's uh, funded by the HSE. And uh, can I just ask you something? With the process of, of it being reported, say this couple are separated and they have a child, and the child tells the mother that the father's been abusing. Yeah. That's where a lot of the fear is coming from, is in those kind of relationships and situations. Because a lot of women are saying they're afraid to go to Tussla now because Tussla will take the child and put the child in foster care, or... They don't put the child in foster care, but the, the father still has the right to access to the child, even though there's an accusation of abuse there. 
in my experience, it's very unusual for a child to be whipped into foster care. That's a last resort. We see a lot of children where parents are separated and the relationship between the parents may be acrimonious and there is an allegation of child sexual assault. That is taken very seriously and that's taken seriously both by us in the forensic medical field and by TUSLA. An assessment is done and the assessment is thorough. Again, we're back to the, the children who are pre-verbal. So the very young children, and often it's a little little one still in nappies and they're coming back from one parent. And their, their bottom is sore and red and one parent is concerned as, what's, as to what's happening in the other's house. It's very difficult then to prove one way or the other what is happening. So there has to be a thorough assessment looking at all aspects of who's in, in touch with that child, what's happening, what the risks are, and that ultimately may, ha- may go to the family courts. So it's taken seriously and the child wouldn't be whipped into foster care unless that was a last resort, if that was the only way to ensure their safety. Okay. Joanne, has forensic evidence ever been the key factor in, in, a, in a criminal case of alleged abuse? It's a part... It's not usually the key, so it's just one part of the puzzle. In actual fact, although we take forensic samples, the window for forensic sampling is very short. So if a child has had sexual contact and they are um, prepubertal, you've got 72 hours to capture forensic evidence because forensics, DNA, sperm doesn't linger in young children for more than 72 hours. As I said, most kids don't present within that time frame. Overall, what weight would you give forensic evidence in cases of sexual abuse allegations? My sense is that it's not really really going to do you an awful lot of good. It's not really much help. Well, that's the truth. To be frank, the forensic side of it, as in forensic positive swabs or physical signs, are rarely found. Yeah, and kind of understand the forensic end of it in maybe a rape situation and you're trying to get like DNA to identify somebody. But in a situation like like we're talking about childhood sexual abuse and all, it doesn't seem to be a big factor in terms of helping the case one way or the other. Sure, it doesn't. No, but that's not to say that medical examination doesn't help the child. And our sense and the research worldwide would, would suggest that therapeutically for a child and their carer to know that they're well, that's of enormous value. I'm assessing the child's risk. I'm assessing the risk of self-harm, of suicidal ideation, of mood disturbance. Yeah, because so when it, you said that first that you were checking their teeth and if they've had lice and I suppose yeah. you're checking for malnutrition levels and everything. Yeah. First, I was kind of a little bit jarred with me a little, but actually, the more I thought about it, the more I could see the huge value in that, that you could you can detect neglect as well as abuse, offer help in areas that they wouldn't have even imagined was possible. So it is good. How do you not burn out dealing with this day in, day out? That must be tough. You're meeting people at their most vulnerable. You're meeting yeah. children at their most vulnerable. God, that has to tear on you. Like You have kids yourself, don't you? Yeah, I have uh, too many. <laughs> I- 
they did a study on forensic examiners and they tried to work out why it was, what personality traits we had that led to this type of work and they didn't come up with the answer. So I don't know, how do I not burn out? I suppose I have a belief that what I'm doing is useful. I can't turn back the clock and stop the awful things that have led a child to the doorstep, but I can make from there on in better. And therefore I get something positive out of seeing the child at the end of my examination smiling. The number of times we have a hug as they're walking out the door, the relief on their face to know that all is well the relief to understand for the the carer right where they're going from here we can help with that so we can help their future pathway that's one way how you don't burn out you have to have other avenues so i walk and i taken up yoga <laughs> and um, i try and look after my own mental health and again that's something that we're working on the medical name is vicarious trauma so of course there's burnout uh, and you have to be so mindful of that and the content is deeply distressing and if you're not distressed by it you're not human and you should stop doing the work at the moment what we're trying to do in this field is is provide the services and then provide gold standard services that psychological and vicarious trauma will be part and parcel of the gold standard. And just hope no child is raped at over the weekends. They're all right if they live in Galway, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to say on this podcast before we wrap it up? If you had a wish list, like imagine you had the funding, what would you be missing? I want somebody to champion the service, somebody who has influence as well as money, uh, the persona. And I I want to see a coordinated approach, a number that you can phone outside of ours that will direct you to a forensic medical service that can provide a timely response, a timely and expert response, and that there is a clinical presence uh, linked in with the therapeutic supports for every child in Ireland, no matter where they live. And so having that national structure with a national lead uh, and the funding to support a full-time clinical presence is vital. I think one of the most important things you actually give somebody is you give the non-abusing parent, you give them peace of mind that they know their child physically is okay. Yes. And then it's about working on the area that needs help. And we've always said all along, the physical bit was the easiest bit to heal from. And it sounds like you're building a healthy organisation. Even the concept of introducing mental health supports for the staff, that it's usually like-minded people that do this kind of work. And to recognise the need for the mental health aspect to be addressed, because that's the key to the whole shebang. Thank God somebody's putting a child needs for us because it's getting very depressing interviewing people. <laughs> we working on the front line helping our children. It appears to me from our experience, things have definitely improved since we were kids, but it really yeah. does still feel that the children never came first in Ireland with anybody. And I feel until we can store up the will in people, we're as guilty 
as the people that are abusing them if we can't make a change here. They can't fix things for themselves. They depend on adults. They don't have a voice. So we have to give them the voice. And by what you're doing, you're working towards that. Because everybody just has to do whatever they can from wherever they stand. I just think you're brilliant. And the thing that you keep saying that's ringing in my ears is your desire for a gold service standard. Can you just imagine what that even looks like? Yeah. Imagine, I just, I hope I'm not 90 when it's um, happening. It will yeah, happen, but it takes a lot of drum banging, doesn't it? It yeah. does, like, you know, you're holding the dream and now we just have to make sure the political will is there to make this happen because it's not rocket science. It wouldn't yeah. pass the earth. Our service would cost so little relatively to, yeah. to run well. So, well done. I'm delighted we had the opportunity to have a conversation because when I heard for Ramblin, I immediately went into CSI and I couldn't even imagine what the hell you were going to be doing. <laughs> but, like, it makes a lot more sense now after the conversation that, you know, you are healing and you're doing so much good. Well done. Delighted to have met you. Well, well done to you. We'll have a mutual appreciation society. Keep <laughs> <laughs> up the good work, ladies. And, and you too. Too. Sue John. Thanks, William. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself. Please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no fake in it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavanagh Sisters podcast. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh Sisters at gmail.com.